Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumboldt.org. You can open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. We're going to look today at all of chapter 10 and the first verse of chapter 11. When I was in uh, seminary, I took a church history class, and one thing that I remember from the class was learning about uh, these saints, these uh, monastic saints from the early church. Uh, So you know what a monk is, someone that lives off in a monastery, kind of separated from the world. Um, So monks are are pretty extreme people. They kind of separate themselves from the world. But then there were these kind of super monks. Um, They called them pillar saints. Uh, And a pillar saint uh, was someone that literally uh, took a pillar, built this big tall pillar, and then climbed up on that pillar and lived there. Okay, so they, they, their attitude was uh, the world is this, this broken, sinful, evil place and, and I'm tempted when I'm in the world um, because of my own sinful heart and so I just need to remove myself from the situation, right? Because I'm, a, I'm, I'm called to this godly life and so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get out of the world and I'm going to go sit on this, on this pole, right? And some of you deer hunters, right? You go sit in the deer stand, just get away from the world, right? Uh, And some parents think, well, it's February, I wouldn't mind getting some time up on a pole away from my kids. Uh, But these these pillar saints were just these extreme separate themselves from the world, right? And and what they did didn't really catch on. It was only a, a very few men and women that ever did that, for pretty obvious reasons. That's a very extreme, difficult lifestyle. Uh, and, and I think most of us would agree that's probably not a healthy way to approach the world. That's not, that's not what God has called us to as Christians. But we also agree that uh, we shouldn't just go the other way and just dive into the world and, and, and do everything that everyone else does, right? We, we recognize as Christians that we're called to, to not engage in the world like a non-Christian. We need to find some sort of middle ground. And what that middle ground looks like, that's where it gets tricky and confusing for us. And that's, that's what this sermon series is all about, living in the gray for the glory of God. So there's black and white issues, but then there's some that we're just not so sure about. And so what do we do in those circumstances? And Jesus talks to us about this in in John chapter 17, before we get to our main passage. John 17, when Jesus is praying shortly before he's arrested, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
So there we see those, those two realities. Jesus says, my followers are not of this world. As Christians, we are called out of the world. We are not to live in the world like we did before we came to Christ. We're not of the world. But Jesus says, I don't ask, Father, that you take them out of the world, right? He doesn't want us to go sit up on a post. But instead, verse 18, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we're not of the world, but we are sent into the world as Christians. God saves us out of this broken, sinful world, and then he turns around and sends us right back into the world on mission for him. He calls us to live in the gray for the glory of God. And that's where we're going to go this morning. Uh, in chapter 10, 1 Corinthians, the main verse here is verse 31. And it's, a, it's one of the more famous verses in 1 Corinthians. I'm sure you've heard before. Paul says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. So whatever you do in the world, do it for the glory of God. You're sent into the world to glorify God. What we need to see in this passage is that God is glorious. We don't make God glorious when we worship him. We show that he is glorious. God is bigger and better and more satisfying than anything that the world has to offer. And he has called us out of death and into his kingdom. And as Christians, we relate to the world in a way that either displays God's glory and commends Jesus to other people, or it obscures God's glory and it gives other people the impression that, you know what, God's not that big a deal. God's not worth your attention. Obeying and worshiping him, it's optional. As Christians, we're not of the world, but we're sent into it. And Understanding that rightly is really important for our souls, it's important for our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, and it's important for the unbelieving world around us. And so let's look at 1 Corinthians 10 and see how that unfolds. Uh, first, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11. We're going to see that living as if you are of this world is deadly for your own soul. Verse 1. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness." Now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. So the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Paul takes us here in the beginning of the chapter back to the Old Testament. He takes us to the book of Exodus and uses the Israelites and their journey out of slavery into the wilderness to the promised land as an example to us. What, what Paul's pointing out here is that the Israelites had a front row seat to God's glory. They saw God work to rescue them. So they, they were rescued from Pharaoh. They were slaves in Egypt. And God sent them a savior. God sent Moses to save them from Egypt. God used Moses to bring these 10 plagues on the Egyptians, to crush the Egyptians, to crush the Egyptians' false gods, and then to deliver the Israelites out of that slavery. And so they leave slavery and they get to the Red Sea and they hit a dead end at the Red Sea and God rescues them again. God opens up the Red Sea and they pass through it and then God crushes the Egyptian army by bringing the Red Sea back. And so they had a front row seat to that and then they, they're traveling through the desert and they get hungry and God sends them this miracle bread, manna, and then they're thirsty, and God sends them a rock, and Moses strikes the rock, and water comes out, so God provides miraculously for them in that way. <clears throat> and so the Israelites, they just saw time after time after time of God revealing how glorious he was by saving them. And yet, the Israelites were characterized by unbelief. They loved the things of the world and they didn't trust or obey or depend on God. Paul says in, in verse 7, do not be idolaters. Verse 8, don't indulge in sexual immorality like they did. Don't put Christ to the test like they did, verse 9. Don't grumble as some of them did, verse 10. So we see them behaving like God's glory was small and the world's glory was big, right? They pursued idols, they grumbled, they questioned, they pursued sexual immorality. They just disobeyed God time after time. And the result in verse 5 even though they saw God's salvation, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Most Israelites in the book of Exodus die outside of the promised land. They don't enter into God's rest because of their unbelief. Last week, Pastor Doug took us through chapter 9, and we saw verse 27, where, where Paul says that he disciplined his body, kept it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. The Israelites were disqualified. They saw God's glory and God's grace, but they were disqualified from finishing the race because they ran off the path. And so Paul's saying, don't do that. Don't be like them. I want to talk to the, the women here for a minute. Women, many of you are going through the wilderness wanderings study. And you're, you're studying this right now. You're studying the book of Exodus. You're seeing everything that God did for the Israelites. 
And so I want to ask you, what do you think Paul would say to you about why the study that you're doing is worth it? Why would a, a group of women in, in Humboldt, Iowa in 2020 be worried about the Old Testament and something that happened thousands of years ago? Isn't there something that's a little bit more fruitful or, or relevant or current for you to study? Here's what Paul, Paul would say to you in verse 11. Now, these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. What happened to the Israelites thousands of years ago as they walked out of Egypt to the promised land was an example for us, and it's written down for our instruction. Now, of course, men, we should study this too, but women, you're doing this right now. And it's worth it because God has a word for you in Exodus. God means for you to look at the story of the Israelites in Exodus and learn from them. To see Moses' faith and Joshua and Caleb's courage and Miriam's worship and the Israelites' unbelief and doubt and grumbling and questioning, he means you, for you to slow down, look at that story and learn. As you study this passage of Scripture, you're seeing how people responded to God's glory. Paul says at the end of verse 11, this is an example for us on whom the end of the ages has come. What does that mean? That, that means that we are the ones who have seen Christ. Christ is the fulfillment of all of God's plans. Now, as, as Christians, we live in the latter days, right? In, in former days, God spoke through Moses and the prophets, but now in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son. That's Hebrews chapter 1. And and we have seen God's glory and God's saving grace finally and fully in Christ. The, Egypt, the Israelites, excuse me, were slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. You and I are slaves to our sin. God sent Moses to rescue the Israelites out of that slavery. God has sent Christ to rescue us from our slavery. The, God passed over the Israelites uh, when they put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. God has passed over our sins when we take the blood of Christ for ourselves, when we, when we look to Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So just like the, Egypt, the Israelites had that front row seat to God's glory, you and I have a front row seat to God's glory finally revealed in Jesus Christ. And so the first question from this passage is, is that compelling to you? Does that hold weight for you? Or, like Israel, are you unmoved by that? Are you continuing in your old ways? God has offered you his glory and his salvation through Christ, and are you saying, nah, I'm going to go over here. I'm going to worship this idol. I'm going to grumble. I'm going to question him. I'm going to pursue this sexual immorality. God's glory doesn't mean much to me. Paul says that's deadly for your soul. That takes us to, to verse 12 through 22. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. 
No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then, that food offered to idols is anything, or that an idol is anything? No, I imply that what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That needs a little unpacking. Uh, the Corinthian church, remember, was in this uh, Greek city, Corinth, this pagan city. And in that city, there were temples where they worshipped other gods. And so what would happen is the, the people, the priest, would take an animal, sacrifice that animal on the altar as, as a sacrifice to this god, they would burn part of the animal on the altar, right? So the, the, the animal is burnt up as an offering to this god. And then they would take part of the animal and they would eat it together at the temple. So kind of during the worship service, they would eat part of this animal that had been just offered as a sacrifice. And then whatever was left over, they would just go and sell at the marketplace. And... Some of the church was going to these worship services. They were going to the temple and they were eating the meat that had been offered as a sacrifice. And Paul says, you can't do that. Back in chapter 8, he said they, they could eat meat, but here in chapter 10, he says they can't. And it's because of where the meat's being eaten. And what he says is, uh, verse 15 I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there's one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he says, hey, think of the Lord's Supper. When you take the Lord's Supper, it's an act of worship. You are worshiping Jesus when you take the bread and the cup. You're saying this bread is Christ's body. This cup is Christ's blood. And so it's an act of worship when you do it. Incidentally, this is why when we do the Lord's Supper here, we encourage you, if you, if you haven't yet taken that step to trust Christ, if, you, if you're not following him as your Lord and Savior, if you're still kind of exploring what it means to be a Christian, we just encourage you to let the cup and the, and the bread go. Don't, don't take the Lord's Supper because... You're not, you're not ready for it. You're not, you're not worshiping King Jesus yet, and that's okay. And so Paul's saying that's an act of worship. Or, verse 18, consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? Paul says same thing when the Jews go to their temple, when they offer up this sacrifice, and when they're eating in the temple, that is worship to them. They are worshiping the Lord, when they eat that meat. 
That's why they don't let Gentiles into the temple, because they can't participate in the worship. And so Paul says, okay, if, if Christians worship during the Lord's Supper and Jews are worshiping when they offer a sacrifice, what do you think the Gentiles are doing when they offer their sacrifice? It's the same thing. They're worshiping. Verse 20, no, I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Paul's saying here, there's, there's two types of communion happening. You have the, one author said, there's the Lord's communion, right? There's Christian communion, and then there's this demon communion, right? What the, what the pagans are doing at their temple, that's communion, but it's not the communion that we like. And so Paul says, you can't do it. You can't come here on Sunday morning and take the Lord's Supper and then leave and go to the temple of Aphrodite or whoever and, and worship there too. You can't do both. Verse 21, you can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Don't participate in that worship. So the application for us is, is in verses 12 through 14. Paul says... Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Don't mess around with this stuff. Don't pretend that you can keep going with the old patterns and behaviors from your former life. And don't pretend that because you're a Christian, you're immune from temptation. Paul says, run away. Uh, verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Go the opposite direction. Don't give glory or weight to something that doesn't have any. It doesn't make sense for you to participate in this sacrifice to this false god because that god is nothing. It's, there's a demon behind that god. Don't participate in that. Instead, give all of your worship and all of your honor and all of the weightiness to the true god. Only serve him. Now, this is a hard, harder passage to, to kind of understand in our context. Um, in, in Corinth, there were literally temples, and they were literally offering sacrifices to these false gods, right? There's no Buddhist temple in Humboldt, right? We, we don't experience this in the same way as, as Paul's initial readers in Corinth. Right? But think of some of our, our global partners. Think of the Daivigs or the Shramics. They're, they're ministering in these Muslim contexts where it's like, there's the mosque right there. Can we go in there? If, a Christ, if someone becomes a believer out of a Muslim background, can they still go to the mosque? Right? These, are, these are questions that they're having to wrestle with. So we can feel like, well, we don't really wrestle with that. Right? I get my meat at Hy-Vee or Fairway. Right? You have to pick. And it's, it's a little more subtle for us. Most of what we participate in is morally neutral, right? Most, most Christians understand uh, that, that the, the stuff that our, our neighbors and, and that we participate in, it's just morally neutral stuff. And so we have to be a little more discerning about it. What we have to realize is that even the stuff that happens around us that is morally neutral, 
really quickly becomes worship, right? So I could, you could apply this a bunch of ways. I'm just going to pick two really quick. The first one's sports, right? Sports is fine. Sports is a morally neutral thing, but, but you know this. You've, you've maybe experienced this or you've at least seen others experience it. Sports really quickly becomes worship in our culture, doesn't it? Right? If you look at the way that people uh, root for their team or, or follow sports, it's like, man, that's what has the weight in your life. That's what you care about. That's what, you, that's what your emotions rise and fall on. That's where your joy comes. By the way that you're living, I can see that sports is where it's at for you. Right? So one example... Uh, back in 1998, the Vikings had a good team. Um, and I, I have a friend who, he was a little bit, I was 12 in 1998. That was the first time my heart was broken by the Vikings. Uh, for, first time, not only time. But uh, I have a friend who's uh, about 15 years older, so he was an adult in 1998. And he was living in the Twin Cities. And he just really loved the Vikings, really cheered for them. Um, and they had, they had this really, really good team. Uh, they got to the NFC Championship game, and they had a kicker, Gary Anderson, who hadn't missed a field goal all year. Um, and so they're in the championship game, and he, all he has to do is hit this short field goal, and they're going to go to the Super Bowl, and wide left, right? Or maybe wide right, I don't remember. Uh, he missed the field goal, and the Falcons went to the Super Bowl and got beaten by the Broncos because they were terrible. And... My, my buddy, he's living in the Twin Cities, and he said the rest of the week, the entire, the entire city was just under a cloud. He's, just People were just depressed by this loss. And he was depressed by this loss, and he realized, what are we doing? What, what's the problem here? And he realized the Lord prompted him, hey, you need to reevaluate and adjust your relationship to sports. This has taken a place that is too big in your life. It looks morally neutral, but you're worshiping right now. And so he had to change. The other, the other application would be politics. So Pastor Doug went there a couple weeks ago, so I'll go there too. Should Christians just disengage from politics and, and run away from it? No, of course not, right? We should engage. We're called to participate in, in, our, in our community. And so it's, it's good and right for Christians to be involved politically, but you all know that you can really do it poorly, right? We all know that many Christians do politics really badly. Does the way that you support a candidate or a party make it look like that's where your hope is and that's who you're depending on? And does the way that you speak about the other candidate and the other party make it look like you're, you're going to be devastated if they win? As Christians, we, we should have a more modest expectation out of a candidate. So, so it's, it's fine to support a candidate and to say, hey, I really hope this person gets elected because I, I think that they might be able to do this good or, or that good. But let's not, let's not pretend, let's not act like, hey, this candidate has to be in office or else we're doomed. And if that candidate gets into office, I'm moving to Canada, right? We can't act that way as Christians. 
King Jesus is on his throne, and so we don't really care who's in the Oval Office. We don't really care who the governor is. Ultimately, in comparison, right? Yeah, we, we, can, we can get involved, we can vote, we can, we can uh, be active politically, but at the end of the day, King Jesus is in control. That's where our hope is. And so some of us need to reevaluate how we do politics. So Paul, Paul says we need to be careful because it's deadly for your soul how you engage the world. And then second, Paul says, if you live as if you are of this world, it misleads unbelievers and fellow believers. Verse 20, 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold in the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If, if one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat of it. For the, for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience, I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Back in chapter 8, Paul said that meat is morally neutral. You can eat or you cannot eat meat. It's not a big deal. And he gives the church freedom to eat as long as it doesn't cause others to stumble. And so he goes back to that argument here. Paul says, if you are invited to the home of an unbeliever and you feel like going, go for it. Eat whatever they serve without asking questions. Do you see Paul's heart here? Paul says, hey, if you get invited into the home of an unbeliever and you feel like it, you should absolutely go. Praise God that you've been invited, right? Peter, or excuse me, Paul and Jesus they encourage us, they, in fact, Jesus commands us as Christians to roll up our sleeves and get involved in the world, right? Uh, be part of our community, rub shoulders with unbelievers, eat with tax collectors and sinners, get wa take water from the Samaritan woman. You're not of the world, but you are sent into it, and so you should be with people that are unbelievers. Don't flee from potentially awkward or messy situations. Get involved, but do it in a way that shows that you're distinctively different. If someone, whether a believer or an unbeliever, is associating the meat with pagan worship, so uh, this unbeliever goes and buys this meat from the meat market, brings it, in and, and you get, you're sitting down, you're just about to eat, and someone says, oh, by the way, this, this meat was offered as a sacrifice to, to this God. Then Paul says, hey, pass on the steak and fill up on the veggies, right? Just for the sake of their conscience, just don't eat the meat. It's not wrong to eat it, but at that point, it's damaging the other person's conscience. It's causing you to appear as if you are affirming or participating in, in, this, in the worship of that idol, right? Hey, this meat was offered to Aphrodite. And so now if you eat that meat, that person thinks, oh, this, person, this believer is okay with honoring Aphrodite, giving her weight and glory. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. 
So the word conscience pops up five times in, in verses 25 through 30. Uh, just as a reminder, the conscience is a God-given instrument. It's like a compass. It points us toward what is right and away from what is wrong. But because of sin, the conscience has been misaligned, has been warped, it's flawed. So our conscience can be rightly or wrongly tuned, right? Just like a compass can either point toward north or it can be off 15 degrees. And it can be overly sensitive or it can be seared where you just don't feel anything, right? Some people disobey their consciences so often that their conscience just stops working, right? And so Paul says, we need to tune our conscience in accordance with God's word. God's word is true north, and we need to line it up with that. And so he does that here in this passage. He says, hey, you can't go eat at the altar of Aphrodite. You, you can't go worship at these temples. That's wrong. Right? So God's word commands us not to do that. Right? So we tune our conscience in accordance with God's word, and then we properly sensitize it according to brotherly love. And so we need to be able to have the freedom to say, yes, I can eat meat right now because it's not hurting anyone, but if it causes this person to stumble, I'll just pass. So Paul says we need to be careful how we're engaging the world because unbelievers and believers are watching us and we're either going to lead them toward Christ or away from Christ. Which brings us to our, our final few verses, verse 31 where I started. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is similar to what Paul said in chapter 9, Pastor Doug covered last week. I've become all things to all people, that by any means I might save some. Paul says, hey, I don't worry about my own freedom. I worry about the benefit of others. I'm going to live in such a way that helps others follow Jesus. And that's what he calls us to in this chapter as well. So we're supposed to do everything for the glory of God. Whether we eat or drink, whatever we do, whether we participate in sports or politics or in the workplace or whatever, whatever we do, it's for the glory of God. God is glorious, whether we want him to be or not, whether we show him to be or not. God is glorious. And the question is whether you're obscuring or revealing that glory. Based on your behavior, people are going to conclude, well, God's not that important. He, he doesn't deserve my total attention or devotion. And obedience must be optional. And worship is not very compelling. Or they're going to see God is glorious. He is worthy of affection. He is worthy of obedience. He is wise and good and trustworthy. And following him is worth it. So you're going to either reveal or obscure, which is why in, in closing verse 1 of chapter 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. People know that you're a Christian. They're watching you. God's word reveals Christ to us. People know Christ through his word. 
but our lives as Christians are meant to make Christ more tangible, more relatable, right? So people can read the Bible, but they need to see the Bible lived out in you guys, in me. I can see what God's claiming, but, but what does it really mean? Apart from our witness, it, it gets a little abstract. You are a unique person in a unique life stage. Wherever God has, has planted you, whatever you are going through right now, is showing people what it means to trust Christ in that season of life. Empty nester, young parent, single student, senior saint, what, what, wherever the Lord has you, People are looking at you and saying, what does it mean to follow Christ that way in that season? So Christina and I do this, right? We have, we're in our 30s and, and we have three really little kids. I have no idea how to raise kids in elementary school, high school, college, etc. So I'm watching you guys, right? I'm looking to you to see what's it look like, right? There's, there's families that Christina and I look at that are, you know, one or two or three seasons ahead of us. And we say, we want to follow them. We want to, see, we want to do it the way that they're doing it. Because they're honoring Christ in, in their parenting, in their marriage, in their, in their workplace life. Right? We want to see what you're doing. Unbelievers are watching the same things. People are seeing what it means to follow Christ through you. And so let's live in a way that shows God is glorious. Everything that I do is, is run through the lens of, does this make God look good? Does this show people how good God is? Or does this lead people to think, yeah, God's not that big of a deal? It doesn't mean we have to be perfect, but it means we have to be dependent. We're not of the world, but we're sent into the world to display his glory. Let's pray. God, you are glorious. You have worked salvation through Jesus Christ. There is no one else that saves us. We have no other hope than the hope that we have in Jesus. And so I pray, Father, that we would live in light of that hope, that we wouldn't be of the world anymore, but rather that we would live on mission, sent into the world, seeking to show people how good and glorious Jesus is. In his name we pray, amen.